And today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles or you have the Bible app on your phone, uh, you can look that up. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, when I was in college, uh, this movie came out that kind of, uh, in a sense, it was kind of a revolutionary kind of movie. Uh, some of you guys probably saw it. Uh, it was called The Sixth Sense. Now, if you've seen The Sixth Sense, it's by a guy named M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, if you've seen The Sixth Sense, you know that there's kind of like this moment that happens in The Sixth Sense where everything shifts and changes. And so like I'm sitting in the theater with some of my friends and I'm watching this and it's really well-made movie, a uh, little scary, but like it's great and I'm enjoying it. But then this moment happens and I go from liking this movie to loving this movie. Like this moment happens and everything shifts and I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. But it's this incredible like high point where everything that comes after, of course that like happens in stories is different because of it. But not only that, like everything that happened before it is this whole new deal. So I went back and watched the movie again, and the movie is an entirely different movie the second time that you watch it because of what happens in this one moment. And I majored in English in college, and as an English major, one thing that I learned is that every story has parts to it. And I've actually got a diagram up here for you guys so we can kind of walk through this a little bit together. Uh, so stories begin with a setup or kind of they give you some context or an introduction. This is where you learn the characters and you kind of learn the setting and what's going on a little bit. Then you have what's called the rising action of the story. And this is where the story really starts grooving and things start happening. So if you've got some guys who are like on a quest to go through a ring into Mordor or whatever, uh, like this is where they start their journey in the beginning. And so this is the rising action. And then everything is building up to this one moment, which is the climax of the story. And this is it. This is the moment of the story where everything changes. It's what the entire story has been building up to the whole time. And then everything after that changes because of this one moment. And so you see then, after the climax, you move into this falling action where you still, the story starts to resolve itself a little bit. You see the result of what happens in that one moment that changed everything. And then ultimately, you end up with a resolution or kind of the end of the story. Now, we've been walking for the course of this year through a series that we call The Whole Story, where basically we have taken the Bible and we started back in Genesis and we're walking through the whole story of Scripture, trying to get an idea of what God has been doing throughout Scripture the entire time. And today we're going to be talking about that big moment. We're going to be talking about that climax, the moment that changes everything for Scripture. And so as we look at that, it's, we can clearly see, like Charlie was talking about, that that moment is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We have this moment in Scripture where everything changes because of these two great events. We have literally the lowest point in all of history. Literally, the darkest time in all of history is followed by the resurrection of Jesus, the light of the world coming and shining new life and new hope to a people who have been yearning and hoping for it for all of eternity. We studied this this year at Easter and kind of looked at this, but I want to take this different look at it today and look at these two events in the context of the whole story. And I want to be clear from the beginning that God is the author of this story. God is the author of all of this happening. God wrote it. 
God planned it. God ordained everything. We believe as a church that nothing happens in this world that is outside of the control of God. And so as we get to these moments, as we get to the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, those are things, two things that the Lord has been planning from the beginning of time. And that God sent his own son Jesus to die on a cross and then to rise again. And so we're going to be looking at this from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Paul wrote uh, 1 Corinthians and specifically wrote it about 20 years following the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And what was happening at the time is there were a group of people in the church in Corinth who started to believe that there probably wasn't, they didn't think that there was resurrection from the dead anymore. Like, that's really miraculous, and how does that even happen? And so they started to doubt the fact that anyone could rise from the dead. Now, Paul hears about this, and he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's basically giving them a really clear explanation of the fact that, no, this is something real, this is something that happened, and this is something that you have got to believe in and trust in. And so usually when we see Paul lay out really clear moments of theology in Scripture, he's combating some bad belief that is happening inside of the church or happening in the culture. And today in our culture, I don't even have to tell you that we live among a people who don't believe in those kinds of miracles anymore. And so it's so important for us as we look to Scripture and look to what this is all about and as we're trying to understand this whole story to know and believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus are not only real, but they are the moment that changed everything for Scripture and history in our lives as well. And so today what I want to do is talk about why is the death and the resurrection of Jesus the moment that changes everything. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. And Paul's first reason for us as to why this is the moment that changes everything is because we are reminded of it. Here's what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so Paul's coming to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, listen, I'm here to remind you. I'm reminding you about the thing that I came to you and I preached to you already, that thing that you received and that you took in and that you said you believed in. I'm here to tell you again about it because you're starting to forget about the importance of it. And not just that, but that this gospel, this good news of Jesus is the thing that you stand in. He uses that terminology, and I love that because ultimately not only do the death and the resurrection of Jesus allow us the opportunity to stand before God, but they're also the thing that are the foundations of our lives that allow us to stand through everything that life brings our way and all the difficulties that come in our direction day after day. And so when I've had a really difficult time and when the world is caving in on me and I feel like there's nothing that I can do, I realize that I don't stand based on the world, that I stand based on the good news of Jesus. It is my foundation for life. And Paul goes on in verse 2 and he says, not only that, but it's the thing in which you are being saved. And notice that he doesn't say that it's the thing that saved you. He says it's the thing in which you are being saved. And basically what he's saying is that salvation is a continual thing, that it didn't just happen then, but it's happening in your life now. And that is why you need to be reminded that God is still at work saving you from your sin through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When I was 16 years old, uh, I got my driver's license, which I was very excited about, and my parents were nice enough to hand over 
to me the keys of a 1986 Toyota Camry. And I was really pumped about this, and so my dad gave me the keys, and the first thing that he said to me is, he's like, I'm going to give you this car, and it's going to be yours, but you are responsible for paying for the insurance, and you're responsible for paying for the gas. As a 16-year-old who wants to drive, you'll take any deal you can get. And so I'm like, absolutely. And so I took that deal, and the first thing that I did was I hopped in that car, I cranked up DC Talk on my radio, and I like drove down to go hang out with some of my friends. And, and so what I did is over the next few days, like I'm out, I'm hanging out with my friends, it's great, I can decide what I want to do and go where I want to go, like even across town where I couldn't ride my bike before. So I'm like really excited about this, but then something tragic happened, and my car ran out of gas. So I'm looking at this, and I'm like, okay. So I go to my dad, and I'm like, hey, dad, I know that you, like, said this, but can I just borrow some money so I can get some gas? Because I need to go, like, hang out with my friend. We have this video game we're going to play. My dad looks at me, and he's like, we made a deal. And that is that you are going to be responsible for these things. And so I had to get a job. So I went and I got a job. And I started earning money. But even, even beyond that, there were times where I blew all my money on something stupid. And I would go to my dad and I would ask him and say, Dad, can I have some money, please? And my dad would say, no, we made a deal. And so my dad was constantly reminding me of this. And it was helping me to grow as a person, helping me to be responsible, helping me to mature. And today I look back on that and I'm incredibly thankful that my dad dealt with me in that way. I think sometimes those kinds of reminders for us are important when it comes to the gospel too, because a lot of us have a tendency to think that the gospel only mattered back then when I got saved, and I'm like, yeah, I'm thankful for it now, but like, I'm saved, and it's, it's kind of done. But the truth is, we are still being saved, and because of that, we need the reminder of that. We need the reminder that we're not doing this on our strength, but we're trusting the good news of Jesus to make that happen. Because if we are a Christian, if we are a believer, this is still the moment of our salvation. And we call this sanctification. It's God doing the work in us to kill sin and helping us to put on more of Jesus in our lives. And so this one moment that happened in history that changed everything has ongoing effects in my life. And because of that, I need to be reminded of it consistently. This is why it's so important to us at Church of Cane Bay and why we tell you that the gospel is our core value that everything about us as a church rests on that core value. And then if we as a church ever stopped believing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then we would cease to exist as a church. When we go to our sermon team and talk through our material that's going to be preached from stage on Sunday, one of the first questions that we usually ask is, where's Jesus in this? How does this point to the good news of the gospel? So this is the moment that changes everything because we're reminded of it. Number two, because all scripture builds up to it. If you look in verse three, Paul says, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says this is a first importance, meaning that this is the most important thing that you need to understand. If you like forget some other stuff, that's fine, but get this, this is the heart of the gospel. The death and the resurrection of Jesus are the thing that make the gospel good news. The word gospel literally means good news, but there is no good news if there is no resurrection. And so our lives rest on it. And Paul gives us the gospel simply here, and I love this. The gospel simply, number one, 
Christ died for our sins. That we owed a penalty for our sins. And Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. That we literally deserve death. Death is what we earned from our sin. But Jesus came and he took that penalty for us. As he died on the cross, bore the weight of our sin, died for our sins in our place. And when he did that, our sins that he was bearing were put to death with him on the cross. And so Paul says, number one, Christ died for our sins. Number two, Christ was buried. I think this is an important thing for him to mention because I know when I was a kid, and maybe a lot of us have this kind of understanding, but when I was a kid, I tended to view like Jesus more as a superhero because I didn't have a really good understanding of, of God. And so when I was thinking about Jesus, I was like, well, if Jesus is like a superhero. That means that like he can't die. And so I'm like, maybe like he got hurt really bad and like needed some time off or, or whatever. But I didn't believe as a kid that God could actually die. And so I struggled with that, like how Jesus could physically die. But Paul puts this here for a reason, because he wants us to be clear about the fact that Jesus' death was real, that it was physical, and that in order for our sins to be put to death, Jesus had to die. And number three, he says that Christ rose on the third day, that that empty tomb was proof of the real and physical resurrection of Jesus. And like I said a second ago, without the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel isn't the gospel because there is no good news. And with each of those things, Paul says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Because all of the Bible carries this recurring theme of pushing towards this big moment that changes everything. And what we see in the people of God is that it is this constant yearning and hoping and desiring for a Savior to come for them. We've walked through this, but I want to just give you kind of a recap really quick. If you look back to Genesis chapter 3, remember the fall. Adam and Eve were there, and sin came into the world. Um, God promised that an offspring would come that would bruise the head of the serpent. Later on in Genesis, we see in the life of Noah, Noah and his family are rescued. They receive salvation from the flood by this wooden thing that was called an ark that saved them from the waters. And that ark was pointing forward to another thing that was made out of wood that one day Jesus would die on for our sins. Abraham and Sarah had this yearning in their lives. They, God had given them a promise that through their offspring, all the families of the world would be blessed. And they're yearning to see how that's going to happen because they don't have children. And God blesses them with a son. And then he tests that faith with their faith with that son, asking them to be willing to sacrifice the very gift that he had given to them that was going to fulfill this promise. Abraham follows in obedience, and at the last moment, God intervenes and provides another sacrifice that for us is a picture of the other sacrifice that would come and save us from the penalty of death. Israel, in 400 years in slavery in Egypt, was yearning for freedom and hoping that they could be rescued, and God provided that deliverance through Moses. Moses brought the law, and in that law there was built up a system of sacrifice saying that in order for sins to be forgiven, the blood had to be shed, but ultimately pointing to one who was to come, a lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. The people in their sin were begging for a king, knowing that they needed to be ruled and that someone needed to reign them in, and so they asked God for a king. God ultimately relents and he gives them a king, but because that king is just a man, 
The people of Israel realized their need for someone to come, another king to come and rescue them. David writes in his own words, one of these kings about his own hoping for salvation and his own yearning for salvation. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which are the very words that Christ spoke to God on the cross. Israel's prophets wrote of a child to be born and a king to come. But in exile, they constantly get reminded of the depth of their sin and their need for God, even when they consistently turn their back on him and reject him. As we move into the New Testament, we see that God gives a sign to a group of shepherds and to a group of kings to direct them towards this king that God's people have been looking for throughout history. And even Jesus leaks the truth to his disciples about who he is, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he was going to have to die, but that he would rise again. Everything in this book is working towards this one moment that changes everything. Everything is building to this one moment because of the fact that God wrote it and God planned it that way. He wanted us to be sure to know that it's not because of us, it's not because of anything that we've done, but it's everything because of what he has done. And so God's people yearn for this and they hope for this. And some of you this morning may be here yearning and hoping yourself, realizing that you've tried to, to fill your life with so many things and you've asked yourself the question, there's got to be more to life than this. And maybe what you don't realize is that your life is building towards something great. So we're reminded of it. All scripture builds up to it. Number three, this is the moment that changes everything because it's true. We look to verse five. It says, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. And Cephas is Peter. And so Jesus, this is the resurrected Jesus. After he had died, when he rose from the dead, appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the 12 apostles. It then says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And so Paul's trying to say to these people who don't believe in resurrection from the dead, he's like, listen, there were 500 people who saw Jesus and a bunch of them are still alive. Just go ask them. They'll tell you they saw him there. Verse seven, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James here is literally the brother of Jesus. And can you imagine? You grew up with Jesus. You saw that Jesus was put to death. And then the next thing that you know, you physically see your brother who had died raised from the dead. Paul says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so Paul's giving us eyewitness testimony for a reason. He wants the Corinth church to know this is a real thing. It's true. It actually happened. We've already kind of like looked at an overview of Scripture to give us a clear picture that Scripture points to the fact that this is true, that this is coming. And obviously after looking back and saying that this is the moment that changed everything. But I think we can also look at Jesus' family, specifically his brother James, to see how we can trust this to be a true event. If you look in John chapter 7, verse 5, it literally says, For not even his brothers believed in him. And so we have testimony that Jesus' brothers don't believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And then later on, you have this moment where James, his brother, sees Jesus after he had risen from the dead. And that's got to be a crazy moment for someone to go through. But we know that that impacted James in a huge way because if you look at the book that he wrote, James chapter 1, verse 1, 
And James opens that book up by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing Jesus risen was enough to turn him from unbelief to belief. But I think that the disciples are even probably better evidence for us. These are the guys that spent time with Jesus, that Jesus invested his life into. But even more importantly, these are the guys that saw Jesus die. They were there, they saw it happen, and they saw Jesus being taken and put away into a tomb. But thankfully, there are also guys who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And that meant everything to them. And what we know about the disciples is that out of 12 of them, 11 of those guys ended up sacrificing or giving their life for the sake of the gospel. The question for us is, would they have given their life for something that they knew to be a lie? There is no way. They would not be willing to sacrifice themselves if they didn't believe that Jesus actually died or if they didn't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But because they knew for a fact that Jesus rose from the dead and they saw the risen Lord, they were willing to sacrifice everything and give everything for him. And so we can look at that and say and believe that this is a real thing that happened, that Jesus' death and his resurrection are real historical events. The New Testament is the most attested ancient document throughout all of history. There are more copies, early copies of the New Testament than of any other book that has ever been written that's an ancient document. And not only that, but all of those copies agree with each other on pretty much every single major detail. Now, Thomas Arnold, who is a professor of modern history at Oxford, said this. He said, No one fact in the history of mankind is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. Benjamin Warfield, who is a Princeton professor, said, The resurrection of Jesus is a fact. This is a real thing, and because it's true, it is a moment that changes everything. There's so much we could go into here. I just want to mention two books to you that are great resources if you want to know more about this and know more about why this is such a foundational thing for you. Uh, These are two books by Tim Keller, The Reason for God and Making Sense of God. Uh, Two great books to help you if if you're not quite sure and you want to be able to trust these things more. I encourage you to pick those up as well. So we're reminded of it. Scripture builds up to it. It's true. Number four, this is the moment that changes everything because it changes us. Paul says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. Paul considers himself unworthy, not just because of his sin, not just because of the fact that we all have sin and we're unworthy, but because he persecuted the church as well. And in verse 10, Paul doesn't give any credit to himself. He gives all credit to the grace of God. And it is the grace of God that has saved him, nothing that he has done. Yet, he says that he works harder than anybody. And the reason is because he believes in something that is so much greater than himself that it causes him to want to work and want to serve. Usually when we think of grace, we think we receive something for free. That means we don't have to do something. But for Paul, it was a motivator to do ministry and to let other people know about the hope that is found in him. I've been blessed to see the work of the gospel in my life changing me, but blessed to see it in the lives of others as well. 
We have a family who's here this morning that when I met them over five years ago, before we ever launched as a church, I was talking to them and, and seeing if maybe they wanted to get connected, plugged in to what we were doing. And they just flat out told me, we're never going to come to your church. We literally don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. So I was like, okay, sounds good. But over time, they got connected. And over time, they got plugged in. And over time, that husband gave his life to the Lord and was baptized. Months later, that wife gave her life to the Lord and was baptized. And this past week, I was able to sit in their home with mom and their son and listen to their son explain to me the gospel. Listen to their son confess his sin to Jesus and ask Christ to be his Lord and Savior. And this morning, you guys were able to witness Cole Howarth be baptized by his mom, Janet. And that's not because of anything that they have done, but it is the work of the death and resurrection of Jesus that is alive in us and is working in us. So thankful to see that kind of testimony happening and what God is doing in us. I've seen it in me, and I know it to be true because the good news of Jesus has changed me and because I stand in it. Because when I have a hard day and when I go through difficulty, I am able to stand and I'm able to persevere because of the gospel, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I'll be honest with you, I had a tough week this week, and Emily and I had a hearing on Thursday and got some really bad news uh, concerning our adoption. And I know for a fact that if I was trusting in external circumstances, if I was trusting in my strength to stand, that I would be broken and I would be unable to be here doing this right now. But I don't stand in those things. I stand in the hope of the gospel and the hope of the resurrection and the good news that Christ died for my sins and then he rose again on the third day. Have you made that decision? Are you here and you realize that you're yearning for something and yearning for change and yearning for hope? There is great hope for you. Lastly, this is the moment that changes everything because our faith rests on it. Paul says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, only we are of all people most to be pitied. And so Paul goes through a lot of things there. I'm going to break it down just really quick. Remember that he's talking to these people who don't believe in resurrection from the dead anymore. And he gives six things that are the case if there is no resurrection from the dead. In verse 13, number one, he says, if there's no resurrection, then that means Jesus wasn't raised. That means Jesus is still in a tomb or in a grave somewhere. Number two in verse 14 If there's no resurrection, then our preaching is in vain. There's no reason for us to be here gathered right now. We might as well all go home if there is no resurrection from the dead because there's no good news to tell. Number three, 
there's no resurrection, then our faith is vain. There's no point to this. We should give up. What we do in our missional communities and what we do in our huddles, in your quiet time, everything that you do for the good of the gospel is pointless and we should just put it aside. Number four in verse 17, he says, if there's no resurrection, then you're still in your sins, lost, hopeless, and sad. Number five in verse 18, if there's no resurrection, then those who have trusted Christ and passed on have no hope for eternity. There's nothing there for them afterwards. Lastly, number six, if there's no resurrection, we should be pitied because all of this is totally meaningless, yet we have dedicated our lives to it. People should feel sorry for us. You can't follow Jesus without believing in the death and the resurrection as real things that happen. And people try and do it, but you can't. It's pointless. And those people should be pitied. Martin Luther said this. He said, for a person to not believe in the resurrection, he must deny in a lump the gospel and everything that is proclaimed of Christ and of God in brief, that God is God. If we can't believe what Scripture proclaims about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then we can't trust it for anything. We can't trust anything about what it says about Jesus. We can't trust anything about what he says about God. We can't just believe that Jesus was a good teacher. We've got to go all in and believe everything about it. Remember what we were talking about this whole story. Looking at Scripture in this way, I think I've got that image again, but if you look at the whole picture there, remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus are the climax. They are the moment that changes everything up there. And everything before has been building up to it, and everything after it is changed because of it. If all of Scripture and all of history and everything has been changed by this one moment, that means that you have the opportunity to be changed by it too. The bottom line for us this morning is that the whole story is your story. And that if the death and the resurrection of Jesus changes everything about Scripture, history, and everyone, that means that it can change everything about you as well. That if all of Scripture is wrapped around the death and resurrection of Jesus, then your life should be as well. So our goal this morning is to find ourselves in that story. And we're either on one side or the other, of that one moment. We've either accepted the grace of God, we've accepted the gospel, or we're still yearning and hoping for it. Some of you this morning are still on that side where you feel like your life is, something's coming, but you haven't experienced real hope and you haven't experienced real love and you haven't experienced real joy. And maybe you've been looking to, like Israel, searching for a king to save them. You've been looking at politics to be that thing that's going to give you direction and, and move your life in the right direction. Or, or maybe you've been trying to fill it with relationship after relationship, trying to find the right one that can fill that place in your life. Maybe you're looking for affirmation from people who surround you. Or, or maybe you're just buying a bunch of stuff thinking eventually some of this has to make me happy. I can promise you that all of that is going to leave you feeling empty every time because it doesn't have what it needs to change your life. But there is something that can and that will, and that is the good news of Jesus. And it's good news for you this morning because it's free. And you have the opportunity to receive it, to trust the fact that Jesus died for your sins in your place. 
and that he is offering you new life, new hope, new joy if you just accept it. In just a few minutes, I'm going to go and ask the band to come back up. I'll be standing over here, and I would love the opportunity to get to pray with you. If that's you, you feel like your life is building towards something and you're hoping for something, come over here. Let's pray together because I know that God is offering you grace and peace and forgiveness. The rest of us are on the other side of that moment this morning. You've experienced grace, but you need to be reminded of it. It's so easy to fall into a rut of believing that we've done this, that I have caused the things in my life to happen and to trust in myself, to trust in my hopes and to trust in my desires to be the things that have gotten me where we are. But that's not the case. Your life isn't about those things. Your life is literally about this moment that changes everything, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We didn't change us. We're not the good news because if we were the good news, we would still be lost in our sin. But Jesus is the good news because he can put that sin to death and offer you new life. So the gospel is working in us today, and we constantly need to be reminded of it. That's why we spend so much time trying to connect you guys into a relationship in a huddle that's going to remind you of the work of the gospel in your life. Because I know that daily when I wake up, I need to be reminded that it's not about me, but it's about him. It's not about what I've done, but it's about what he's done. And for me, my huddle gives me an opportunity for someone to sit in front of me every week and remind me of that. My huddle gives me an opportunity for me to open up the word of God with someone else and be reminded of that truth from God's word. And so I'd encourage you, if you're not connected in those relationships, get plugged in, come to one of our events, and be able to find someone that can constantly remind you, hey, the gospel's still working in you. You may not be perfect yet, but God is still working to make you more like Jesus. So wherever you are this morning, if you're saved, be reminded that the death and the resurrection of Jesus are working constantly in your life to produce good fruit, to get rid of sin, and to make you more like Jesus. Or if you're here and you're yearning and you're hoping for something that you haven't found yet, today is the day where you can find the fulfillment of that hope. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for grace. But God, we come and confess this morning that it's so often that we live our lives as if we are the thing that matters. But God, we have our desires and, 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 and our direction for life and that we pursue the things that we want. And Lord, so often we forget about the fact that it's not about any of that stuff. But ultimately, our lives are wrapped up in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so God, I pray for us as believers this morning who are here that we can be reminded of that truth and reminded of that fact that we can't just remember what the gospel did in us, but we've got to be reminded of what the gospel's doing in us now. So Lord, we're thankful for that reminder from your word. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to remind us through your word and through relationships, the hope that we have in Jesus and in his death and in his resurrection. And God as well, I pray for those who are here who haven't experienced the hope that you are offering them through Christ. Lord, I pray that this morning is an opportunity for them to, to see, to believe, and to accept, and 
to find the thing that their life has been yearning for and hoping for, even though they may not even realize it. God, whatever it is, may the gospel continue to do its work in our hearts. May you continue to put our sin to death through Christ's death. May you continue to give us new life through the resurrection.